This episode contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, November 3rd, the You Sports Are Out of Control edition. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom to three littles, Henry, who's 10, Oliver, who's eight, and Teddy, who's six. We live in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I'm Zach Rosen. I make a podcast called The Best Advice Show, and I have two kids. My oldest, Noah, is five, and my youngest, Ami, is two. We live in Detroit. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who is nine and a half, and we live in Los Angeles. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about sports. Zach speaks with author Linda Flanagan about her book, Take Back the Game, which is all about how kids' sports have been transformed into a high-commitment, all-consuming, ultra-competitive space, and what big money has to do with it. Then on Slate Plus, we're talking about controversial people who have the power to influence our children's lives. You can sign up by going to slate.com slash momanddadplus. Again, that's slate.com slash momanddadplus. Okay, we're going to catch up on our week in parenting, but not before a quick break. See you back here in a second. All right, we're back. Jamila, do you have a triumph or fail for us this week? I have a fail. So last week was Halloween. I waited until Sunday to purchase candy for Naima to bring to school. To be fair, I wasn't sure there wasn't any communication like until maybe Thursday, you know, and there was just an an email that went out that said all candy that's sent in has to be in a sealed bag. But it didn't say you can send candy, you know, like it wasn't clear to me. And so I was like, I guess that means candy. And so I wait until Sunday to purchase candy. We went to this thing called Hauntaween in like Sherman Oaks. It was like one of those. um, I'd never been to one before because I'm not a suburb girl, but like, uh, like a pop up theme park. Cannot, but not like a full out theme park, but like an experiential, you know, like they had places where you could take pictures and some rides and bouncy houses and they had trick or treating in there. It was like a Halloween experience thing. And we went with some of our friends and we went to dinner first. And so we had kind of a tight schedule on Sunday because we had like a specific time we had to be at Hauntaween. So I'm like, okay, we'll stop at the grocery store and get some candy. And so I'm like, hey, let's go to the bigger grocery store. Naeem was like, are we like we're going to pavilion? We live near our Ralphs, uh, if anyone's an LA person. And there's also a pavilions not too far. And I was like, let's just go to pavilions. It's bigger. They'll probably have a better candy selection because I'm like, it's the day before Halloween. People have stocked up. And so we go and they're like completely out. And now we're a little low on time. So I'm like, okay, well, we have time to stop at the Ralphs by our house. It's right there. I go in and there is one large bag of candy left. And it's like the biggest bag of candy ever. Maybe it was like 300 pieces or so, like 365 pieces. It was the only large bag left. And all they had left aside from that were like the bags that aren't that big. So you have to like buy three or four of them. Stuff like payday. Nobody wants paydays. Kids don't like paydays. So I'm like, okay, this is the last bag bag left was clearly meant for me. I'm so, you know, I I counted my blessings. I'm always so fortunate. I'm always so lucky. And I get to the register and this bag of candy costs $35. For 360 pieces? Yeah. So I guess in a way it might make sense. And I did read somewhere that like the price of fun sized candy bars had like, you know, gone up significantly with inflation this year, but it was the last bag left. So I was trapped. And so I purchased it 
thinking, well, at least I can eat some of this candy, you know, like I'm going to take some of the Twix bars out. And then I looked again at the email from the school and it said that the bags have to be sent in sealed. So I got no parts of this candy and Naima went to her dad's house on Halloween and trick or treated. So like I didn't get any, like I got played on candy. Like I half the reason I bought the big old bag, I was like, well, at least I know I can eat some. And I didn't get no candy. No! I only had one night worth of Halloween candy. It's so unfair. I'll send you some of ours. We have some extra. Maybe we should all sell it. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> well, now it's worthless on November 1st. I feel like, though, this isn't your failure. This is the universe failing you. Okay, Zach, triumph or fail for you. I'm going to consider this a triumph. I don't know what came over me, but the other night, Noah and I were just laying in bed And I asked her, I said, no, what could I do to be a better dad? And she thought about it. And she said, well, can you stop rushing me so much in the morning? You're always rushing me. I'm like, you're right. I totally rush you in the morning. And I was trying not to be like, it's because you can't get your fucking socks on. But so I I, I really was like, you know, not saying that. I was just like, okay, thank you. Thank you for for telling me that. I appreciate the feedback. And can you not hit the table at dinner that night at dinner Shira was gone so it was just the three of us eating this frankly delicious mushroom soup that i made um and she got up and just like started doing crafts at the other end of the table i was like noah we're we're eating right now no response noah come on come back to your table no response and then the third you know after after not responding to me in two times i i hit the table pretty hard i was like noah come back and sit down we're eating dinner and that was too hard didn't need to didn't need to hit the table like that and she said don't don't hit the table like that so she gave me two very important pieces of of data daddy data and uh it was nice i think she felt you know she just felt like okay this is like a symbiotic reciprocal relationship in which i don't just get told what to do and how to behave i get to kind of give you feedback and it was it was very sweet and uh i recommend it In some, you know, relationship thing Jeff and I went to, that was like the takeaway that I that I brought home with me to implement with Jeff is like asking, what's one thing I can do to make your day easier tomorrow? Just like what what's one thing I can do? Like if we've had a hard day with the kids, I will ask them too. But it's like just asking for one thing that that I can prioritize for this other person. And what I found is that when I ask them, eventually they start asking me, which I think is is a nice thing, right? Like if, if I could just do one thing tomorrow to make you feel loved, what would that be? Which is essentially what you're saying, right? Like, hey, how can I how can I do this dad thing better? And not that you have to take it, but at least then you have the data. So I think that's a wonderful, like, way to just check in and make them feel, like you said, that it's reciprocal. That, like, you are not perfect and you're w- open for suggestions, too. One may be valid. The rushing thing is like, well, <laughs> we're going to be late. But also at the same time, it's like, okay, sc- we, I can get her to school between 8.15 and 8.30. And if, she, if we get there at like 8.31 or 8.28, it doesn't matter. At least knowing that she feels rushed too, right? Like the takeaway there is like, okay, this is creating a stressful situation. Mm-hmm. What about you? I'm taking a fail. I was traveling with the kids for two weeks. Jeff had a bunch of work stuff. And so I took them on kind of this whirlwind trip. Actually, my mom came and got Henry and took him to New York um, for she had promised each of them that they could go on like a solo adventure with her for their 10th birthday. And of course, he turned 
10 last spring, but due to scheduling, this was a good time to go. And what he wanted to do was go see a show on Broadway. And unbelievably, my mom was able to pull that off and they saw a show there. He was great. I was very nervous because him traveling alone, you know, he has um, just like the medicines and will they be able to manage like if he does have kind of like a freak out. Everything went great. Meanwhile, I flew with the other two to Atlanta. Wow. Then we all joined my mom at a conference at Disney, including Henry. And so I had the three there. My dad was around was around to help, but fundamentally had three kids at Disney by myself. And um, the first day was a total disaster. Uh, we went to Epcot and just so much crying and whining, running off ahead of things and complaining. And I never yelled, but I was very frustrated. And so as we were kind of waiting for the shuttle to take us back, I was thinking like, well, how could we do this better? And I realized that so much of it was my, like, I had not set us up for success, both in my mental thinking about this trip, because I'm thinking like, we lived in Florida and we thought we were going to take them to Disney a lot um, because we lived in Florida and it was right there. But then COVID happened, so we didn't. So this trip felt like, okay, it's making up for that. I want them to do all of these things. They're big enough now to ride roller coasters. They're like into this stuff. We need to do all of these things. They need to see all of these things. They need to experience it because we won't be back. Okay, they don't care about any of that. They just want to have fun. We're like in a fun place. They want to pick the stuff to do. I, um, you know, wanted to like get the good fun treats that I had read about and planned, not like what was available when they were hungry. (laughs) I had made some meal reservations and they were at weird times. Like I just did not set us up for success. And I realized that I was a huge part of the problem. So the next day I was just like, forget it. We just do what we do. And if we don't do any of the things, it's fine. We're just going to like go to the park. Second day was awesome. And that was a day in which um, my dad was with us for a little bit, but then had to go back to join my mom for some stuff. So I had the kids, the three of them at Magic Kingdom, super crowded because there's all this Halloween stuff going on. And at each park, I had told them there was one like homeschool activity that we were going to do. There's like a ride that's more educational and they were like, cool. So this was, we're going to go to the Hall of Presidents. And so we go to the Hall of Presidents And we sit down, and Henry, because he's 10, decides to sit, like, three seats away from me because I'm sitting with the other two. And he's like, they're going to disturb my experience. I'm like, okay. The show is, I don't know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, I don't know. So we sit down. There's robotic presidents. They are really great. And we had just, like, a really wonderful day. This is kind of towards the evening, and we were waiting for our last, like, fast pass or whatever they call it now to get to ride something. And um, they're asking questions, but they're being really quiet. Lights come up, show ends, I grab the two hands, I walk out, we get out, and Henry is not with us. We we are out in the lobby, and here he comes running from the theater, screaming at me, I fell asleep, and you left me in there. This other mom had to wake me up and make sure that I wasn't left in there. They're closing the park because it was like closing early for this Halloween party. And here's the thing. I absolutely left him. I never looked back. I never. I thought, this kid is 10. He knows that we entered this way. We're walking this way. He wanted to sit by himself. The other mom, like, was, you know, waving at me. He was like, she had to shake me awake. And then I was just like, what treat can I buy you to make this better? <laughs> and I did. We we all we all got some kind of ridiculously overpriced cupcake. We ate it. We rode our last ride. And we went home. And, you know, uh, it was fine. We had a great, uh, the rest of the trip was great. But, um, yeah, I, I legitimately just left him asleep in a theater. 
This makes me think about a kind of macro dynamic of triumphs and fails. I feel like I offer more triumphs and you two offer more fails. And I think it's because, I mean, I think it has so much to do with men and women and y'all being harder on yourselves than you need to and me being easier on myself than I probably need to. Like you just took this whirlwind trip. You got one kid to go to a musical on Broadway. You fucking did Disney. Just getting through Disney is a triumph in itself. You weren't going to leave him at the park. This is more triumph than fail. And uh, I think you need to be kinder to yourself. And Jamila, you got the candy, dude. Triumph. Yeah, I know. I Like I said, fail here is that she didn't get any to eat. Yes, that's the real fail. But you are right. And it's also the it's Disney's fault for the Hall of Presidents being so boring. And like dark. Maybe, and, yeah. <laughs> and dark. Why did you all go to it? For educational purposes. That was like my homeschool thing. Because each day I was like, we're going to do one thing. And, and the thing I picked there was like, we're going to go to the Hall of Presidents. We're, we're going to like see the presidents, right? Um, that's what we went to. <laughs> Uh, to make me feel like, yes, we are still homeschooling, even though we're at Disney. I mean, to be fair, my children ask people all about the forces of the roller coaster and, like, speeds. And I just was like, you know, tell me you homeschool without telling me you homeschool. Like, whoops. But you're right. So what? He got a little nap. See, another triumph. Well, we're going to take another quick break. And then right after, we're going to jump into Zach's interview. We're back. Zach recently spoke with Linda Flanagan about her book, Take Back the Game. Zach, can you tell us what we're about to hear? Yeah. So Linda Flanagan is not only a journalist and an author, she also has a ton of experience as a coach. She coached cross country for 17 years. She raised three kids. So she has seen sports evolve from kind of all directions over the course of, of her life and, you know, particularly over the past couple decades where she has just seen kids sports just become kind of a disaster in so many ways. The seriousness with which parents and coaches take it, the amount of money that's made in kids sports, kids sports is worth $19 billion, whereas the NFL is worth $15 billion. Like kids sports is this crazy, crazy profitable industry. And so here it is. Can you describe some of the major differences between youth sports then to what they've become today? When I was growing up, sports for me were going to the park and playing catch with my sisters. And games were, you know, I started playing in a a little rec league at the earliest I could. And that was like sixth grade. And that was like once a week, a game, you know, we had like uniform shirts, nothing fancy. And, you know, now it's transformed in middle and upper income areas. There's just more and more pressure to pick a sport at a young age and play that sport strictly and to travel, to compete, to travel, go to different, you know, cities and even states sometimes to compete, sometimes against your neighbor, but you have to drive there to do it. And what are some of the main drivers of this change? Well, first is money. There's a ton of money in youth sports now that was never there before. Um, You know, private investors have recognized that there's an appetite for it, that parents are eager to give their kids an advantage. Spending on parks and public facilities has declined beginning in the 70s. And then they really fell off a cliff after the recession in 2008. So the the private enterprise stepped in and... um, 
has kind of flooded the market with private options, opportunities. And the, and the message is always more is better, you know, more strength training, more extra coaching, more special practice. So that's one is money. The second is a large cultural change about our responsibilities to our kids. This has shifted. And again, I always think about my parents and my generation, but we weren't the focal point of our parents' lives. My siblings and I, I was one of five and while they certainly loved us and cared about us just as much as I care about my three kids, it was expressed differently. And that's a function of economic anxiety beginning beginning in the 70s again. And there's just been a, a shift to a, a singular focus on kids. And we do everything for our kids because we're so nervous about how they're going to turn out and what is their future going to be like. And, you know, anxiety is the driver. And the third factor quickly is colleges. All the changes, they seem they're more expensive, they're more competitive, harder to get into. So it seems like sports are one way in. In your book, uh, Take Back the Game, I'm going to quote you. You write, it's not the sports themselves that are flawed, but the way we do or don't deliver them to kids that's so costly. It's the arrangement we've allowed to develop with perverse incentives that celebrate excess and promote greed. It's a system, ad hoc, decentralized with no one in charge that forces parents of aspiring athletes into servitude. What do you mean by servitude? There is pressure beginning in as young as second grade for kids to join travel teams. So what that means is you're going to be spending your weekends driving your children to other states sometimes, certainly an hour or more away to compete. And regular practices, you know, during the week so that the child's sport becomes the dominating force. It only gets more intense as they get older. So it might start in second grade, but by the time they're in high school or middle school, even, you know, your weekends, forget about your weekends, forget about your summers. There's just so much sacrifice and expected of parents in this. When I was a a seventh grade basketball player on a very mediocre team. I remember my coach broke a clipboard over his knee in the locker room during a halftime meeting. I'll never forget it. You know, this is 25 years ago or something. I remember it like it was yesterday. To what extent is, is cruel coaching part of our culture in America? Okay. It tells you something that, that you remember that. Like, you're not going to forget something like that because like, wow, he's really upset. That's so typical. I mean, maybe that's a slightly extreme version, but variations of that are everywhere. There's like a special carve out for sports in our country where it's okay to be crazy. It's okay for coaches to be crazy, to be shrieking and yelling and breaking clipboards. And it's okay for parents to be crazy. You know, it's excused as long as the coach is winning and parents excuse it if their child is playing and if the child isn't complaining or if they're complaining, they're only complaining a little. And anyway, look at your record. This is going to help you get into a better college. So we just kind of look the other way in a strange, I find it very strange when you consider what we expect of other people who work with kids. If teachers carried on like that, that just wouldn't be okay. But for some reason, we, we allow it in sports and because we allow it, it happens. Okay, I mean, right now you're talking to a bunch of parents, many of whom have kids in sports. What should they think about on their way to games or practice today? Don't fixate on outcome. Focus on what your child is learning in the sport. There's more to focus on than the outcome. 
Uh, it's, it's not only good for your child, it's good for you because then you're not so like, oh, did you win? Recognize, and it's a very big picture thing, is that to the extent that you can, it's to model an appealing adulthood. Because, you know, we want our kids to look forward to growing up. And if if you are rushing around like a mad woman or a mad man and sacrificing your weekends and your summers and all you do is talk about sports and, you know, how frantic you are and you're working and you're trying to juggle all this stuff, you're basically an indentured servant for your children's athletic career. Parents need to remember that their lives matter, too. And that you can be a wonderful, loving, supportive parent and not do all of these crazy things. That's fantastic. I love that. Is there anything else you want to say, Linda? We should be encouraging exercise and movement and play as much as possible. It's great. It's great for kids. It's great for adults. So I don't by any stretch of the imagination mean to suggest that you should not encourage that because Activity is really important. It's about boundaries and proportion. That's the main point. And that's it for our show. Make sure to join us on Monday because it's a special week. We'll be dedicating both episodes to friendship. We'll talk about how to help your kids navigate friendships. We also got a wonderful episode for parents on finding and keeping meaningful friendships. Be sure to tune in. While you're at it, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. If you're looking for a fun parenting community, don't forget the Slate Facebook Parenting Group. It's a great way to ask questions and get recommendations of your own. This episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting is produced by Christy Tywo Macanjula and Rosemary Belson. For Zach Rosen and Jamila Lemieux, I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. Thanks for listening. All right, Slate Plus listeners, let's keep going. Okay, so this is sort of like a, a peek behind the, the screen here. Before the show started, we, the three of us, got into a conversation about Kanye West and Elon Musk, and it was something that we decided was a conversation we wanted to have on air. So, Jamila, can you kind of introduce the topic and what we were talking about, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, I've just, I've been thinking a lot about Kanye lately and how dangerous his influence is. You know, there are a lot of really young people that are still just attracted to him and what he represents. It got me to thinking about, you know, raising children, um, particularly what it must be like to raise boys with the influence of people like, say, a Kanye West or an Elon Musk, people that are sharing really dangerous rhetoric, anti-Black rhetoric, anti-Semitic rhetoric, anti-woman rhetoric, and hiding themselves under this idea of being free thinkers, which is a really compelling concept to a very young person. The idea that somebody is moving to the beat of their own drum, that they challenge society, that they challenge, you know, because we're all uncomfortable in society, right? We're all kind of trying to figure out ways to survive this thing. And so, you know, while you're looking for your survival uh, mechanisms or whatever that may be, there are a lot of people that find comfort in the idea of being outside of the norm, you know, that this is not what other people think is okay. This is one of the things that I, I think a lot about the burden of raising boys, right? Like we, I, I think we think a lot and there's been a lot written about raising girls in the sense that like society is, is 
putting a lot of things on them, but sort of uh, on the other hand of like, what are boys exposed to and are they getting enough of the message of kind of thinking about the consequences of their actions? And I mean, I, I definitely am just at the beginning of this and Henry's kind of awareness of the people that are out there in the media and his ability to go get that information on his own, right? So it's hard for kids because they see someone like, okay, Elon Musk is doing this cool stuff, but what then are they doing with their influence? And so can we say, like, this was a good idea, but the things they're doing with their influence are are bad and using some critical thinking skills. And, and one of the things I find is that when trying to present good influences, a lot of times the people that are doing really good things and also, let's say, from, from my perspective, being good people aren't out there screaming, look at me, look at me, right? You have someone who's, you know, making space vehicles or creating their own clothing brand. Like, these are things that to young kids seem like a really good idea, and they make a lot of money, right? That there's a, I think kids particularly, in my experience, that the boys are drawn to this and don't really care about checking in about those other things. So just trying to get them to, to think about that. Yeah, I really like this idea of being super intentional about teaching nuance um, and being explicit about checking in with our kids' hearts, especially our boys' hearts. And further, just this this notion of exposure, I think, is is so huge. Um, you know, y- young people, young boys in particular, who are idolizing people like Elon Musk and Kanye. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily about, like, introducing a critique of capitalism, or, but I think it is about, like, I don't know. I mean, we live in Detroit, and we see people that are struggling daily and Noah and Ami see this every day. I didn't see that as a kid growing up in the suburbs. I hope and I think that just their consciousness is going to be different from my own, you know, where I was raised in a pretty, um, you know, success centric, go to college, make a lot of money type. Not that my parents pushed that explicitly, but that was the water that I swam in, in the suburbs. And so I'm hoping that raising kids in, in a place with a lot of diversity, you know, our, our synagogue um, centers queer and trans people in, in ways that I was never exposed to at the same time. So I feel like making sure that our ideas and our friend groups and, uh, you know, our media consumption are not homogenous. We were sort of talking about before the show, like, like Kanye West, and I was saying, like, well, who's left? And to me, you were like, well, the men are left. Of, of people who are still okay with Kanye, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, who's left that still thinks Kanye is okay? Yeah. Because we were talking about how, like, he came for the black community. He's come for women. He came for the Jewish community. Like, who is left to be like, hey, this guy's okay? And and you were like, well, it's heterosexual men. Because I think in order for us to fight it in our children, we have to understand why it's happening, right? And and to guard them against the why. And is that why this, like, the fear that I think this side raises that something is being taken from them and so how do we at an early age say to them like no we're stronger as a group like the more voices we have the better we're all going to be yeah i think i mean patriarchy is an uncomfortable set of conditions for most people you know and i think that like 
it's important to explain patriarchy and white supremacy to children as early as possible, you know, so that like you understand that like you may see girls getting opportunities that in the past they didn't get, or maybe the valedictorian and the salutatorian were both girls for the first time in the school's history. You know, that doesn't mean that boys don't have access to opportunities. That doesn't mean that this isn't still a male dominated society. Right. You know, and so that these, and, and the same thing going for race and for sexuality, just understanding that just because people that represent these marginalized identities, are experiencing, you know, moments of visibility or access doesn't change the bigger picture, you know? And I think that's, I think that what most families don't do is explain that bigger picture in terms of keeping your kids away from the allure of these ideas. I think contextualizing patriarchy is important because it is uncomfortable for them. Like it had men are met with these expectations about who they're supposed to be and, you know, showing a lack of emotions and, you know, adhering to certain norms and dressing at times a certain way and and behaving a certain way and having certain responsibilities that men struggle with. And they find this, you know, a painful, uncomfortable box to live in. And so they're looking, you know, constantly for ways to survive that box and to understand it. And unfortunately, you know, where the message should be or the understanding should be like, yeah, patriarchy screwed up and we shouldn't have this hierarchy of gender and I shouldn't be expected to be this rigid thing. Instead, the idea is that these other people are somehow taking something from me. Yeah. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this. So, you know, head over to the Slate Parenting Facebook group. Let us know what you're thinking. If you have questions, send them in. So we'd love to have a whole show kind of focused on this and maybe get some experts in. So let us know. As always, Slate Plus, thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you back here on Monday and be sure to join us on Thursday for another bonus segment. Bye. Bye.